Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about the first few popes, including the very first, St. Peter, and those who followed but aren't as well known. Then Bishop answers listener-submitted questions on the church's biggest priority right now and more. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we're going to talk about some popes. We're going to talk about the one, maybe one of the most unique feast days on the calendar. And before we get into that, Bishop, do you have a do you have a favorite feast day that isn't like your Christmas, Easter, like just something that maybe most people don't celebrate, but you you have a particular attraction to? I would say. Two feasts of Our Lady. Well, you know, a few feasts of Our Lady I really love celebrating, and that would be the Immaculate Conception and Our Lady of Guadalupe mm-hmm. and the Feast of the Assumption. I, I just love the Marian <laughs> feasts. Uh-huh. You know, I like St. Patrick's Day, uh, uh-huh. St. Kevin. Uh-huh. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I was going to guess St. Juan Diego or Our Lady of Guadalupe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Both. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Because, of course, Juan Diego, December 9th is my anniversary of ordination as a bishop, mm-hmm. so that's a very special day. Our Lady of Guadalupe, I always celebrate with different uh, Hispanic communities. Mm-hmm. I've really come to love ever since I was uh, a priest who served you know, the Latino community. So that that's something I didn't grow up with, but yeah. I, I you know, appreciate as a priest and as a bishop. All right. Well, do you have an opening prayer for us today, Bishop? Uh, sure. I think since we're in Lent, I will do a, uh, a prayer that's of this Wednesday of the first week of Lent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Look kindly, Lord, we pray, on the devotion of your people, that those who by self-denial are restrained in body may by the fruit of good works be renewed in mind. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, mentioned that we have maybe uh, one of the more peculiar feast days, and we actually have, back whenever we were doing these daily reflections from priests on the radio, we had Father Ben Mullenkamp, who, who was talking about this feast, and he said, the feast of the chair of St. Peter and all these non-Catholics, you, you Catholics are crazy. And so I have this like audio clip of Father Ben saying, you Catholics are crazy. <laughs> celebrating a chair. Uh, so uh-huh. this was last Monday, February 22nd, was the feast of the chair of St. Peter. Can you explain why we're, we're celebrating this holy chair? We're not really celebrating a piece of furniture. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, really, the chair symbolizes the authority of St. Peter. Okay, so we're, we're commemorating the teaching authority of the Vicar of Christ. As a matter of fact, in the gospel for the feast of the chair of Peter, we hear of the passage from Matthew chapter 6, where Peter professes his faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's when uh, Jesus calls Simon blessed and said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So we really are celebrating 
the authority given by Christ to Peter and his successors. So the chair symbolizes that authority. The, the Latin and Greek word for chair is cathedra. That's where we get the word cathedral. So it means the seat of government. And this, this feast really goes back quite a number of centuries. I think it's interesting to think about, um, was there a literal chair? You know, when you think about, well, where where the church began, it was in the upper room. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't be surprised that in the upper room there, you know, maybe there was a special seat there for Peter mm-hmm. when they would gather, at, you know, after the ascension. But Peter eventually, around the year 34, he left Jerusalem and went to Antioch. And he governed the church from Antioch. So we could say there was a, a seat of government in Antioch while he lived there. He was there for seven years. Then that was a really important city in the ancient world. It had a very diverse population. You know, we know from Scripture that it was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. So Peter ruled there, governed the church there for seven years. And it, there was a feast that began where they would celebrate St. Peter's chair in Antioch, and they would celebrate it on February 22nd. Hmm. Very interesting. And of course, from Antioch, Peter went to Rome, the center of, of the empire. You know, he's the first bishop of Rome, and he led the church from Rome, and he eventually was, was martyred in Rome. So we have this feast of the chair of Peter. It really began in the fourth century. And in Rome, it was celebrated on January 18th. And the reason was they, it was believed that that's the day when Peter gave his first homily in Rome, Okay, uh, January 18th. But at some point, they were also celebrating this feast of St. Peter's chair in Antioch, where Peter had governed earlier. So there were really two feasts of the chair of Peter. Now, around the time of the, uh, I, I think it was when Pope John the Twenty Third, around the time the Second Vatican Council combined the two feasts into one feast and set the date as February twenty second. We use the date that the feast of the Chair of Peter in Antioch was celebrated, so that we don't celebrate the Chair of Peter on January eighteenth anymore. So there's just one one feast of the Chair of Peter. So it's interesting, and you know there is a. Uh, if you go into St. Peter's Basilica, there's what's called the altar of the chair. It's in the apse of the basilica. You've probably, se- well, you've seen it if you've been there, but even I'm sure a lot of people have seen it in pictures or on TV where you have this big bronze chair and it's being held up by four doctors of the church. And then there's a beautiful stained glass window above it of the Holy Spirit. I was ordained a deacon at that altar of the chair. And that bronze chair, uh, gigantic casing supported by four doctors of the church, was by Bernini when they built the new new St. Peter's Basilica. But within that bronze casting, there is enclosed a much older chair that uh, is purported to be the chair that that St. Peter sat on when huh. he was uh, when he was in Rome. So anyhow, what we're really celebrating on the feast of the chair of Peter is not 
the furniture itself, we're, we're celebrating the primacy of St. Peter. Sure. sure. And I did a, just an image search. If you do chair of Peter, it's, there's tons of pictures of it. It is. It's amazing. I, I have been to St. Peter's in Rome and I don't really remember paying that closely attention to this. So yeah, it's really yeah. amazing. It's in the apse, so it's behind the main altar, the main altar that has that magnificent baldacchino over it. Uh-huh. The Pope celebrates Mass there. It's above the tomb of St. Peter. The altar of the chair is behind that. Okay. It's in the apse. And it was in that apse, and Mass is celebrated in the apse too. Okay. And it's within that apse that um, the Mass of where I was ordained a deacon, it was actually celebrated by Cardinal Terrence Cook of New York. He ordained me a deacon. There were about 41 of us, I think, that were ordained. So the apse itself is like a church. You know, it's, you know, St. Peter's Basilica is so massive. You're right. So I thought maybe this would be a good chance to talk about what that represents is the the papacy and maybe some of the earlier popes that we don't really know a whole lot about. And I did a search of like, when was the first Pope to not be martyred? And I think it said the first mm-hmm. 33 popes were martyred. I don't know if is that's that right? accurate, but wow. I don't think we really know sure. um, because what we have is there's a, what's called the book of the popes. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's called the Liber Pontificalis, the pontifical book, Hmm. which is a collection of papal biographies that covers all the popes from St. Peter up until somewhere in the 15th century. It's kind of like an initial collection of biographies, beginning with St. Peter all the way up to uh, the 15th century. But that actually, there was even something earlier that the Liber Pontificalis was based on. That's called the Liberian Catalog. And that was a list of popes from St. Peter up to Pope Liberius in the fourth century. We have these different collections that give some information on the early popes, like when they reigned, maybe what churches they built, where they're buried, you know, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. a little bit about their family or where they were born. And historians, you know, historical accuracy of some of this is is questioned, but there are different sources. And, and um, so according to these sources, the first successor of Peter, the, the one who succeeded Peter, was Linus. We don't know much about the reign of Linus. He's said to have been pope from six, the year 67, so right after, you know, it's believe that Peter was crucified probably in the year 66. Mm-hmm. So you have Linus becoming Pope in the year 67 up to the year 76 AD. So about um, nine years. And he was, um, according to custom, he was an Italian. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, a Jew. There is a Linus who's mentioned in 2 Timothy, St. Paul's second letter to Timothy, there's a question, is that the same Linus? Hmm. Uh, we really don't know. But while he was Pope, that's when the Romans burned down the city of Jerusalem. It was during the Emperor Titus. And then after Linus, we have Cletus. Now, in some sources, he's called Anacletus, hmm. A-N-A, Cletus. Or sometimes, in like in the Eucharistic Prayer 1, 
we just say Cletus. But he was Pope from the year 76 to the year 88. So the second successor to St. Peter, the third Pope. Again, we know very little about him. They think that he was Greek by origin, that he died during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. And he is honored as a martyr. Cletus is honored as a martyr. It's said that he organized Rome into 25 parishes, 25 communities. So Cletus, and then, then the fourth pope, who I think you know is, has maybe more importance than, than the others, is Clement, Clement I. He was pope from around the year 88 to 97. And he was very significant. And we find his name in various sources, Tertullian, Jerome. It's thought that he was actually a slave in a household of one of the Romans. Hmm. Some have identified him with, with the Clement that's mentioned by St. Paul in his letter to the Philippians. There are a lot of legends about St. Clement, stories about him. Uh, there's a story that he was banished to the Crimea and he was put to death by having an anchor tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. But what he's best known for and probably greatest importance are some of his writings, especially what's called his first epistle. And outside the New Testament and the Didache, this is the most important document of the first century for the church. I don't know if you've ever read the first letter of Clement. I know that uh, when I taught at the seminary, I would I would use this this letter because it talks about the priests and bishops and and in the early church. And I taught the course on the sacrament of holy orders, and he kind of used the term bishop and priest interchangeably hmm. in his first letter. So it's a very important document for theology and for church history. So Clement of Rome, there's a really interesting church not far from the Colosseum. If you ever get back to Rome, go, be sure to go to San Clemente. That's his name in Italian, San Clemente, St. Clement. And I love taking people there because it has three. the church has three levels. It's an ancient church. It's one of the station churches. And when you walk in, you're in the Middle Ages church, the medieval church has a beautiful mosaic. And and then if you go into the crypt, you're going back to fourth century, the fourth century church that was there. So it's really interesting. And in that fourth century church are buried St. Cyril and Methodius. Huh. Very interesting, the apostles to the Slavs. And then even fa more fascinating, you can go another level down from the fourth century church to the first century. So then you're on the level of what Rome was in the first century. And there's a Mithraic temple. That's one of the pagan uh, religions. You can see this pagan temple, small. And that would have been what was called uh, nearby the House of Clement. So you can see the roadway and some of the articles from the first century. 
the house of, of Clement. Of course, you know, the popes didn't have a residence back then. You know, they lived wherever. There was no palace or anything like that. The church was was being persecuted. And, you know, eventually around the fourth century, the popes started living at the Lateran. Uh, and then many centuries later at the Vatican. But back then they were just living in regular houses. Those are the first, well, first uh, four popes. Yeah. And we hear those at mass. Yeah. When they do that. Linus, Cletus, Clement, yeah. Sixtus, Cornelius, Cyprian, Lawrence, Chrysogonus. Yeah. So anyhow, you know, when we say Linus, Cletus, Clement, they're the first uh, three popes after, after St. Peter. Sixtus is, is the next one. And we really haven't talked about Sixtus. There are a number of popes that have been named Sixtus, but Sixtus the first was Pope from 115 to 125. And he was a Roman and, uh, he was a saint and martyr as well, but there was also Alexander was before him. So anyhow, I don't want to get into all each of the popes or will be here for forever. Do we have any idea how they were chosen as popes? Um, yeah, they were elected. You know, I, I, I'd have to look back to see whether they were elected by the clergy or by the people. Eventually, the bishops of Rome were elected by the clergy of Rome and even now, everyone, the electors of the Pope are the cardinals. And when the Pope names a, uh, someone a cardinal, they are assigned a parish church of Rome. Hmm. So that it kind of the idea of the clergy of Rome are still electing the Pope. But at that first century, those earliest Popes, I don't know if we have any historical documentation of how they were chosen. I, I don't remember reading whether they were chosen by by the people or by the clergy in those very early decades. And it seems like, especially the first couple centuries, there's maybe around the in the 300s, it seems like we have a lot more action, like the the councils and things like that. Is that because there was less persecution at that time? And so the first couple centuries, there's a lot more persecution. So that's why things tend to be a little bit right. fuzzier. Right. Because remember, Nicaea, the first ecumenical council after the Council of Jerusalem, wasn't until the fourth century when Christianity was legal. Okay. You know, after Constantine. All right. Well, I always like to look at the list of the popes. And I know that was one thing that really was a big part of my faith journey was seeing all the popes and that there was no missing years, that this is right. a, a chain that goes all the way from, well, now Pope Francis all the way back to St. Peter. And whenever I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the, the church that Jesus started whenever he gave Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the power to bind and loose. And that has been passed down in this apostolic succession and like that that was a huge kind of turning point for me between being really questioning you know what religion is the the right one and and that was a big part of that yeah it's true it's really amazing to share with you uh when i first came to uh fort wayne south bend i remember visiting queen of peace parish in mishawaka and the pastor at the time was Father Dan Scheidt. Mm -hmm. And Father Dan wanted me to meet one of the students at Queen of Peace. He's now a young adult. He's in the, in the Air Force. But at that time, he was just a kid. 
and um, he brought this boy out to meet me, and he had memorized the names of all the popes in order. Wow. All 265. <laughs> and in front of me went through the whole list of 265 popes in order. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I was like, I never, yeah, it was really amazing. I think he had kind of some kind of rhythm to it. So, you know, uh -huh. he was able to memorize them. Yeah. Great. All right. If you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can find past episodes there as well. You can text the Holy Cross College text line. It's 260-436-9598. And we have some questions about bishops in other countries the most pressing priority of the church and this history of canon law and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop who has graciously offered to answer questions that people have submitted like our first question. We hear a lot about the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, since it's where we live. But can you talk about how bishops in other countries assemble, issue statements, etc.? Good question. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is an Episcopal conference. So after the Second Vatican Council, this was a new thing where there were Episcopal conferences were authorized where bishops of a particular region could gather to discuss common pastoral issues so that they could gather and exercise, in a way, their collegiality. Because otherwise, the only mechanism for that was, you know, an ecumenical council. But the Vatican II established the, um, the Synod of Bishops, where you have representatives from bishops from around the world that meets periodically. Now, before we had Episcopal conferences, bishops of a particular region met in what were called uh, provincial councils, which would be a particular province, like the bishops of Indiana were the, the province of Indianapolis. So twice a year, the bishops of Indiana, we get together. So even before Vatican II, going back to the 19th century in the United States, there would be these provincial councils of bishops of a particular province. And then there were also plenary councils. That would be all the bishops of a particular country, you know, and they would meet in Baltimore in the United States. So we've had these different ways of bishops getting together to meet. But with Vatican II and after Vatican II, there were established what are called Episcopal conferences, kind of officially with, with certain norms that, that come from the church and canon law, where bishops of a particular country or a particular region would meet and it would have a structure and everything. So, so ours here in the United States is called the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So it has all of the bishops of the United States and our territories will meet in plenary session as a group twice a year. We elect a president a vice president, a treasurer, and a secretary. It has an administrative committee. I'm part of that. It has an executive committee, has a lot of committees like the doctrine committee, of which I'm chair, but several other committees. 
And it really functions well, and it helps the bishops of a particular country or region to work together and to uh, help to strengthen the church and face challenges together. So this isn't unique to the United States. There are Episcopal conferences throughout the world. Mexico, our southern neighbor, there's a Mexican Episcopal conference. Canada has an Episcopal conference. Italy has an Episcopal conference. France, Germany. And then some areas, because the countries are smaller, an Episcopal conference can consist of a few different countries together Mm -hmm. forming uh, a conference. But I find it to be um, really good for the life of the church. Are there standards for how often they need to get together and what kind of things they can and cannot decide upon? Yeah, right. There are. Uh, You can look in canon law and you can see what are the authority of Episcopal conferences. For example, when it comes to teaching, Obviously, it can't be teaching anything that's contrary to the teachings of the universal church. Mm-hmm. There's some uh, a little problem like you might have seen in the news. The Episcopal Conference of Germany right. has been having a synod, and they're in the midst of it. I think it's like a year long, where some of the things they're discussing are areas where really Episcopal conferences have no authority. Mm-hmm. You know, so the Pope is going to have to kind of rein them in a little bit because they're talking about, for example, giving Holy Communion to non Catholics mm-hmm. kind of outside what the church allows, or even the ordination of women. So that's the danger if a, uh, an Episcopal conference kind of started going off on its own, then the Pope has to rein them in. Now, We've not had that problem in the United States or other countries, but there is a present problem with Germany. So we have to pray uh, about that. Would you consider some of those actions to almost be schismatic? There's a danger of that. Now, you know, it would depend if they, after they receive some correction, are they going to obey the correction? Mm -hmm. You know, I would hope and pray that they would. But we've seen schisms in the past, and sometimes it can be a a national thing. There was Gallicanism in France. There was, um, there have been some episodes where, you know, the successor of St. Peter has to kind of step in. You know, the particular Episcopal conferences, they're not only teach with Peter, but under Peter, Mm -hmm. sub Petro. It's cum Petro et sub Petro. Huh. And so we are to be with Peter and under Peter. I always keep that in mind. Yeah. So, for example, you know, the doctrine committee. Uh, a couple months ago, we put out the document on vaccines. We have another document coming out. We have to make sure that the teaching that we are giving is truly Catholic teaching. What I like to do before putting something out is send it to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith at the Vatican to make sure it's in accord with what the Vatican is thinking. So we really haven't had problems with the U.S. Episcopal Conference. I mean, I think we're very faithful to the Holy See. Various Episcopal Conferences will will make statements uh, either as a conference or maybe a committee of the conference. For example... The statement from 
on vaccines came from the doctrine committee of the USCCB. It wasn't from the whole conference. It, it was, it, you know, it takes longer if you're going to do something from the whole conference because you have to wait till all the bishops are together and discuss it and, and things like that. So it's very clear when I put out that statement that it was a statement of the doctrine committee. It wasn't a statement of the whole conference. Okay. I like to see what's happening in other countries. Like um, sometimes we'll we'll look and see. Okay, what are the Canadian bishops saying about this? Or what are the Mexican bishops? Or the English bishops? Or the Italian bishops? And really, it's it's a it's a good way. I mean, we all have our own unique local situations. There may be some issues that we're dealing here with here in the United States that aren't really a major issue, let's say in England, or there might be issues that are very similar that we're dealing with, or some particular challenge that the church is facing in Australia. You know, so Episcopal conferences are good because it can look at local or regional issues. All right. Our next listener submitted question is, what do you think is the most pressing priority for the church right now? You know, that doesn't take me long to think about because I I really think it's unity. I just think in our polarized nation, polarized society, some of that polarization has entered into the church. Mm -hmm. And I've talked a lot about this. I've written about it, preached about it. It's very dangerous when people get swayed by an ideology, especially a political ideology. And we have Catholics in the United States who are a minority, but who have become very ideological, where they're very extreme in their views on the right or on the left. It can be the far right or the far left. Mm -hmm. And really, the teaching of the church becomes forgotten or badly interpreted and not fully embraced. So we've seen that. I've seen it. Bishops around the country and even in other countries have seen this problem where people, rather than being formed in their faith by the teaching of the Pope and the bishops, they're going on to websites or blogs or whatever that are kind of radical and they're being formed by that rather than by the gospel and the teachings of the church. And I think that's very dangerous, mm-hmm. um, very dangerous. And some have made certain political figures kind of into idols, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and that's, faith is not ideology. We must embrace our faith in its totality And I've said many times, neither the Republican or the Democratic Party represents the fullness of our faith in the positions. There are positions of both parties that go against the teaching of the faith. So we need to be Catholics first. So I really would warn people of the dangers of ideology, embracing ideologies. The gospel is not an ideology. Mm -hmm. I, I really think people need to watch what they're reading where they're getting their information, and not be taken in by false messiahs. All right. Another listener wrote in saying, I understand that canon law was first compiled in 1917. What did it look like before then? Good question. Before 1917, there was canon law, 
There were laws of the church, norms, but they were kind of various collections around different places in the world, in Rome, etc. So in 1917, all of it was compiled into one code so that it would be more uniform, that the church's norms throughout the world would be more uniform. So that was a lot of work. But canon law was around for centuries before in 1917, but it was never codified into one universal code. That happened in 1917, as you mentioned. It was in 1983 that we had the first major revision of the code of canon law. So the 1917 code was revised, especially in light of the teachings of the Second Vatican Council and some of the changes in law that took place after the council. So 1983, and that was the year I was ordained a priest, we got the new, the new code of canon law, which was promulgated by Pope John Paul II. It was very interesting being a seminarian in the 70s and uh, late 70s and early 80s, because how did we study canon law? The 1917 code was still in force, but it was being revised. So we were also studying the schemas, the drafts of the 1983 code. So that was kind of tough to try to figure out, okay, we know a new code, a revised code's coming, so we're studying the old code, but we're also studying the right. drafts of the new code. But thankfully, by 19, you know, by the year I was ordained, then the new code came out. And I didn't really study canon law for my license until 1986 to 88. So we had the new code at that point. Would the two codes contradict each other or is it more just updating and clarifying? It was, it was a pretty thorough revision. I mean, there are similarities. There are some laws that have remained, but a lot were, were changed or modified in some ways. It's very interesting to put them side by side and you can see the changes. I mean, so you can see the continuity also. Obviously, the fundamentals always remain the same, but because they're based on doctrine, that doesn't change. But the actual discipline for example, if you look at the old code, the 1917 code, you had to uh, fast from midnight on before you received communion. That was gradually relaxed to only fasting three hours before communion. And then in a new code, it's just one hour. So that's just uh, something that affected the life of everyday Catholics. Mm-hmm. But you know, we could go through and look at all the different things. But, you know, there's things in the new code that just didn't exist at the time of the 1917 code. Like there were no Episcopal conferences. So now there's a little section about Episcopal conferences. There was no synod of bishops. So that's new in the new code. There's a lot of of things that uh, are different, just the way tribunals run and Hmm. the whole judicial process in the church. That's developed a lot since 1917. Now, between 1917 and 1983, there were revisions going on too, where the Pope would have, you know, have changed certain laws. So there were already, they were in place. So they were all incorporated into the new 1983 code. And there have been some changes since the 1983 code. For example, just this past two months ago, the Pope is allowing women to receive the the ministries of lector and acolyte. Right. 
that always was reserved to men. So that's a change in the code. Okay. Here's something I haven't thought of before. What is a Vatican diplomat? Do they apply for the position or are they appointed? What is their length of service? <laughs> Interesting. Usually lifetime. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, they don't apply. They would be chosen. They would be selected, uh, asked to study, to work for the, the Vatican diplomatic corps. A bishop would be asked to release a priest, to go to the Pontifical Ecclesiastical Academy. We would commonly call that the Academia. It's in Rome. It's a school. It's one of the Roman colleges, which is dedicated to training priests to serve in the diplomatic corps which is under the Secretariat of State of the Vatican, of the Holy See. So they would go to this school, this academy. They're already priests, and they would spend four years there. They would have three years getting a license in canon law from one of the Roman universities, and then they'd have two years earning a doctorate in either theology or canon law. Some of them, if they already have that degree, they're they would be shortened their time at the academia. They would have special courses on the church's, the history of church diplomacy, learning languages, for example. You know, so it's, it's really something. I, I'll, I'll share something with you that I was invited to uh, go to the academy, huh. academia, when I was uh, ordained just, let's see, I think I was just three years ordained. My bishop was asked to release me, um, but it wasn't something that I felt. And my bishop was left it completely up to me. He didn't say, oh, Kevin, I want you to go to the academy, but invited me to to go. And I, I didn't think that was God's will. Huh. Um, I did spend a few months discerning it, but I didn't become a priest to work as a diplomat. I, I just didn't think that was God's will. Now, if I was told under obedience to do it, I would have, but they left it completely up to me. But the Holy See has had diplomacy going back really to the time of the Council of Nicaea. When you think about it, they had the Pope send a, a legate to represent him at the first Council of Nicaea. So the church has had diplomatic activity going back to you know the fourth century. By the way, when we talk about the, the diplomatic service of the Holy See, you know, we're not talking about the Vatican City State. We're not talking of it like these are representatives of Vatican City. No, they're representatives of the Holy See mm. in different countries. And these representatives of the Pope are called nuncios, an apostolic nuncio, a papal nuncio. He's a, a church diplomat. The term nuncio comes from the Latin nuncius, which means envoy or messenger. So these were envoys of the Holy See to various countries. Now, you know, the, the Catholic Church, the Holy See has nuncios to a hundred or representatives to 183 nations. It was only in the 1980s under President Reagan and John Paul that we had our first apostolic nuncio to the United States. Really? Before that, yep. Before that, you know, there was a lot of anti-Catholicism uh -huh. in U.S. history. So, But before that, they had a representative who was called an apostolic delegate. 
so he didn't have that kind of um, official status like an ambassador has. A nuncio is kind of like an ambassador. But so that there would be some liaison, so to speak, between the Holy See and the, a particular country or the church in that country, they would be called apostolic delegates. So it was a big deal when the U.S. established diplomatic, formal diplomatic relationships with the Holy See under President Reagan. Some were very against it. Also, more recently, you know, John Paul, I think it was in the 90s, established diplomatic relations with the state of Israel. That was a big deal. Hmm. In countries with whom the Holy See doesn't have diplomatic ties, an apostolic delegate may be sent as an, uh, a liaison with the Catholic Church in that country, but it's not like an accredited ambassador. So I hope you understand, like, and now, you know, I mean, when you look at it, we have official, you know, the, the Holy See has official, diplomat, official diplomatic relations with 183 countries. Uh, that's pretty significant when you think about it. Now, we do not have, the Holy See doesn't have a... Uh, official diplomatic relations with some places like North Korea or, or China. The Holy See has diplomatic relations with Taiwan, the Republic of China, but not with the People's Republic of China, not with Red China. You know, the Holy See has, has official rep relations with South Korea, but not North Korea. Hmm. Now, all the diplomatic activity of the Holy See is directed by the Secretary of State, and there's always a Cardinal Secretary of State. And one of the sections of the Vatican Secretary of State is what's called the Section for Relations with States. The Nuncio to the United States, the last several years, last number of years, is Archbishop Christophe Pierre. He's French, he's been a, a Vatican diplomat for decades. So he's the um, official, kind of like an ambassador, but also the nuncio also serves as the liaison between the Holy See and the church in that particular nation. So for example, the nuncio in Washington is the one who gives names to the Vatican to suggest you know, future bishops that you know, recommendations for who should be named bishops. That's okay. another question. I think we talked about that on a previous episode. Yeah. And it's interesting how the Holy See for, for a long time has been recognized as a subject of international law and is an active participant in international relations. The Holy See has an observer at the United Nations even. So anyhow, that gives you some information. Uh, it's so crazy. I had never really thought about that before. And it's amazing that you were asked to be a diplomat, and had you said yes, things would be so different today oh. for you, for our diocese. Right, and right, that's it. right. And it was hard. I mean, at that time, I was a priest student in Rome when I was asked, and um, you know, it was hard. I remember it was it was during Lent, and I remember talking to the cardinal who was the the head of the diplomatic uh, the academia. Because I was really struggling, and I was really like, well, is God calling me to do this? Is this something that I'm being asked to do in obedience? Mm -hmm. And they made it clear to me, no, it wasn't something that I was being asked to do in obedience. That made it easier. Mm -hmm. And uh, my, my bishop was 
he would go either way. He would respect whatever. So then I just had to bring it to prayer. And, you know, when it comes to the process of discernment, talk to people, but especially in prayer, like, was I finding peace, those fruits of the Holy Spirit in the idea of serving as a, a Vatican diplomat, and I wasn't experiencing any peace about it. All right. Well, just a reminder that if you have questions, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. If you have a question for Bishop, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.